go to First John, and uh, that's where our teacher tonight is going to start. Jim Williams uh, is one of our elders here. We're in a series called Passages. And this summer, we're taking time to listen to the voices of many leaders in this church. So Kenny spoke, and Jim's speaking, and Sean's going to be speaking next week. And we want to hear from leaders in this community passages that are near and dear to their life and have made a difference in their world. And so Jim uh, is uh, usually here in the morning, but, but Jim, he's a humble guy, but he helped to bring the New Living Translation. How many of you like the New Living Translation as a translation? I love it. He, he and his wife and another team helped translate it into Spanish. So he's a Bible scholar and a teacher and is all over the world. We're glad that we have him on a weekend because usually at least two, three, four times a month he's around uh, the country and the world doing pastors training and leadership conferences. He served with Luis Palau for about 350 years. About 350 years. <laughs> I think, are you, are you the longest term team member with Luis Palau? Was it anyone? It was like... Oh, there was Luis, <laughs> there was Luis Wow, and then Jim Williams. Well, we're, we're thrilled that uh, he and Gail are a part of our community, but not just part. Uh, Jim is one of the six elders that we have that lead the charge here. So will you please welcome uh, Jim Williams to come teach from 1 John 1 tonight. Good evening. 1 John. We're, we're doing a series on passages, as Jose said, that impacted our lives. And I'm gonna, we're only going to look at two verses tonight. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And, um, but those two verses really have impacted my life, as the whole book of 1 John has. And so um, what, I think what we're going to do first is I'd like to read the first chapter, because you'll see the context better if we go through the first, it's only 10 verses. And then we'll read 1 John 2, 1 and 2. John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write these things to you to make our joy complete. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is something. God is light. I did a study on... One time, I just took my concordance and went through God is. And it is thrilling. And I put them all together on a sheet. I keep them in my computer now. And uh, it's thrilling. One of the things is God is light. We'll see in a couple of seconds why that's so important here for the readers of, of uh, 1 John. And in him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, but yet walk in darkness... We lie, and we do, not, uh, we do not live out the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his sons, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, not our wives, for sure not our mother-in-laws. 
we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. <laughs> just. That threw me. And uh, uh, I didn't write this. John did. If I would have written it, I would have put he's faithful and merciful. I don't want his justice. I want his mercy. But we're going to see in a few minutes why he put just here. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We did that. Okay. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now the two verses we're going to look at tonight. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. I was just on a plane. Well, I'm always on a plane. But I was just on a plane, and they showed a movie. And, uh, and, and, and I was looking at the movie, and the uh, main actor was uh, Liam Neeson. You know, you know who Liam Neeson is? You know him. I have a particular set of skills. <laughs> that actor. Now, this wasn't one of those movies, but it was, I had to look it up. I didn't remember the name of the movie. It was called Run All Night. Now, he played the main actor in this, and his name was Jimmy. But what really affected me is that in the movie, he couldn't sleep. He had nightmares when he did sleep, and then he had started drinking heavenly, heavily because of the things he had done in his past, and he couldn't get over it, and he was trying to forget. You know, I, I, I sat there and I said, if only I could tell him, if you only knew what Jesus did, he can take away your sins, and then he says, I'll remember them no more. You know, John, the book of John was written late in the first century. And by the time he wrote, all the problems we have in our church had time to get into their church. So it's an extremely contemporary book. And, um, you know, you don't go to 1 John to lead a person to Christ. Now you go to Ephesians or John or, or, or even Titus or Romans. But you do go to 1 John to find out if a person is really a Christian. If you want to find out if a person is really Christian, you go to 1 John. John, and later on I'm going, to, I'm going to challenge you to go home and read the entire book of 1 John. But as you go through here, he gives three tests. And you've got to have all three of them. You can't have two of the three or one of the three. You've got to have all three of them to become a real Christian. The first one was a theological test. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Then he gives one that I call the social test. Do you love other Christians? And then the moral test. Do you walk in holiness? Not perfection. We know that. Jose's talked about that a lot. Not perfection. But do you walk in holiness? In other words, sin is not a way of life. Then he states the reason, if you go through, that he even wrote the book. I'm going to put these up on the screen. He says, we write this to you to make our joy complete in 1 John 1, 4. The NLT says, we are writing these things so that you may fully share in our joy. The first reason, joy. Second, 1 John 2, 1, I write these things to you that you will not sin. The second reason, holiness. 
Third, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray, 1 John 2.26. Discernment. I tell you, this book is contemporary. Four, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life, assurance of salvation, 1 John 5.13. Now, I found out a couple of people did it this morning. They went home and read the whole book of 1 John. It's only five chapters. Go home, read the whole thing in one sitting, and see where, where these, these uh, tests come in and out in different places as you go through. Now, the background of this book is a word called Gnosticism. When I was in theological seminary, every time one of the professors brought up Gnosticism, I'd fall asleep. But it is the background. We have to take a look at it. And, um, and, and it was the most damaging cult in the first three centuries of, of the Christian era. Now, the basic error is this. They believed that physical material is evil, but the spirit is eternal, pure, and good. So the human body is material, right? Right, okay. Being matter, the human body is evil. However, the human spirit then would be eternally good and can't be affected by what you do in the body. The result, they lived in sin. And that's why you get some of the things. God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have not sinned, you can see all of that coming out in the first chapter. The Gnostic way of salvation was through a special knowledge or a special light. Not by knowing Jesus as Savior. Thus, at the beginning of the book, we see everything that he says about who Jesus is. He starts right off. And spiritual excellence according to them, does not consist in living a holy life. It's only by possessing this spiritual knowledge. This knowledge, according to the Gnostics, makes Christ not so much a savior, but a revealer. A revealer of this light to who? To a privileged few. To a privileged few. Now, this new teaching that was confusing all the people that John was uh, writing to was for sure above Scripture. And to require this new light or this new knowledge, it was okay to break commandments of the Scripture or even sin. To them, the end justified the means. And, as in all wrong doctrine, they had a shortcut here. It was a mystical shortcut that does not include obedience to God's Word. Now, for sure, they failed the theological test. And they were in the church. Remember? You can see they they went out from us, but they were not of us. They were in the church. They failed a theological test about who Jesus was. They failed a social test because they didn't love other Christians. In fact, they said that it was all right to look down and even hate those who didn't have the special light or special knowledge. And that's where you see in 1 John 4 and other places, you know, about about if you hate your brother. And then they failed a moral test. They actually lived in sin. Sin was a way of life. Now, one of the problems that we have today is not recognizing or admitting our sin. Steve Marshman, who's not here tonight, one of our elders, he sent me a little uh, blurb this week uh, through email, uh, a quote by C.S. Lewis. Because C.S. Lewis says, people in the first century generally 
knew when they'd sinned. But now, we don't even think of our sins as being wrong in many cases. C.S. Lewis says. But all this has changed. Christianity now has to preach the diagnosis in itself is very bad news. Before it can win a hearing for the cure. A recovery of the old sense of sin is essential to Christianity. Christ takes it for granted that men are bad. We lack the first condition for understanding what he is talking about. You know, the same problem that the readers of this, of this uh, epistle had. And uh, one of John, John's many anecdotes, as you go through the entire book, was a correct knowledge of who God is. God is light. He starts right off. God is love also. You know, and one, as a counselor, one of the largest contributing factors in counseling is a non-biblical view of who God is. Because in all counseling, at some point, you get to the place of obedience, you see the biblical principles, you see the problem, you see the principles, and you get to the place. But if you're obeying a God of the culture or a God that someone made up or a defective view of God, your obedience isn't going to be complete. You know, and I'm not, I'm not above this. I'm not saying I'm above this because for years I secretly thought that God had favorites and I wasn't one of them. And my wife keeps bombarding me to this day with verses that show that God has no favorites. Thank you, Gail. Now, there are other conclusions that people arrive at because we don't have a correct uh, view of who God is. Some of it has to do with God's love. You know, a loving God would not, would he? Or, surely the good things I do will make up for my sins. And the Gnostics thought that they could live in fellowship with God and live however they wanted to. Now, the clear teaching of 1 John is God is light and there's in him there is no darkness at all. 1-5. Those who live in spiritual darkness are not practicing the truth. 1-6. Now, all of this clarity must have been a great relief to the real believers who read this letter. Now, all of that, let's get into the two verses. My dear children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the entire world. Number one, so that you will not sin. Dear children, I write these things to you. He's saying, basically, walk in the light and you won't sin. Expose yourself to the sources of light and you will not sin. Be in the gathering. Get involved in a missional community. Be in the word and prayer. Expose yourself to the light. Don't excuse your sin. Confess it. Bring it to the light. And he starts out here by saying, dear children. Now, he'd heard this before. John 13, Jesus himself said, my dear children. Now, John, seeing how critical the situation was, People felt guilty when they shouldn't have felt guilty. People didn't feel guilty when they should have felt guilty. Um, the confusion about what sin was and, and wasn't. The tendency for them to be seduced by false teachers. He addresses his readers as their spiritual father, dear children. You know, John probably 
was the last living person who had close fellowship with Jesus. He writes them to help them in their battle with sin. And as he does, he introduces to us a second reason for writing this book. I am writing to you so that you will not sin. Now, as you go through the first chapter, you, you probably come to a couple of conclusions. And I, and I always thought that there's one group that probably overemphasized the great, the marvelous, wonderful forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9. And then there was another group that camped on the other side of it. Oh, the consequences of my sin, you know. And, and, and to, to the first group, he says, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, 1 John 5, 18. But to the second group, who looked at the consequences of sin, who got depressed, look what I've done, God can't forgive me, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, if anyone does sin, John concedes the possibility that the Christian can sin. The form of the original in Greek here shows that sin was never meant to be the norm of the Christian life. The idea here is that there are isolated acts of sin. It could be the same sin coming up over and over again, or it could be just a one-off act. Now, let's see what John has to say about it. He says, we have an advocate with God, Jesus as our defense lawyer. Now, I know a lot about the law. Did I go to law school? No. But I did see every episode of Law and Order. 20 years. 20 years it was on the air. There were 456 episodes. I got so I would, I would object before the lawyers on TV did. Objection! Leading the witness. Objection! That's been asked already and answered. Now, I know for sure that there's four principal people in the courtroom. The first one, just think of if you saw Law & Order, is the prosecuting attorney. He's the ADA, or she's the ADA, the assistant district attorney. Now, the work of the ADA is to bring testimony, to bring evidence and proof to accuse the defendant. Generally, this person has to convince the jury and the judge now, in our spiritual courtroom, we're talking about Satan, the devil. The word devil means accuser, and he's really good at what he does. He accuses man before God. Have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Jose? Have you considered my servant Ashley? And he does that night and day. And then he, then he accuses God before man. Hey, you're not worthy. <laughs> God won't or can't forgive you. In fact, God has forgotten you. Or God has favorites and you're not one of them. The conclusions, if God's forgotten me, are, hmm, why read my Bible? Why go to church? Revelation 12.10 says, The one who accuses them before God night and day, he's relentless. He's relentless. Now, before we go on, I want to say that there's a big difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusation of Satan. 
Because the conviction of the Holy Spirit exalts the name of the Lord Jesus, is precise, and always gives hope because there's an answer. The accusation of Satan maligns us. You know, you're not worthy. And they're vague, you know, and they always brings up the past. <laughs> Look what you did. And they give no hope. So that's number one. We get three others. The second one is the judge. Now, the purpose of the judge is to evaluate the merit of the arguments and to assure that justice is done. He also announces a sentence. In the spiritual courtroom, we're talking about God the Father. The Bible calls God the righteous judge in 2 Timothy 4.8. The third one, the defense attorney. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, the work in, in, in the court of the defense attorney is to present testimony and evidence to convince the jury and the judge that the defendant is, guilt, is not guilty. Now, he uses all kinds of arguments, excuses, ploys to prove that his client is not considered guilty. And that's great contrast with our defense attorney. In the spiritual courtroom, this role is played by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our advocate. In fact, the Greek word is parakletos, which literally means one who comes alongside to give help. In the first century literature, experts have found this word used in the context of interceding for the accused so that they won't have to do it themselves. And the antonym is accuse. Now, this is the only occurrence in all the Bible where the Lord Jesus is called the advocate. The other times, it's the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the Bible that I worked on, in, uh, where the Holy Spirit, it was in um, John 14, John 15, and John 16, we actually called Jesus the defense attorney. Abogado defensor. The Holy Spirit, the defense attorney. Abogado defensor. So our advocate, our defense attorney, is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Fourth, the accused. That's all of us. None of us escape that one. It's all of us. The Holy Spirit convicts. The devil accuses. His, the conscience feels guilty. We've sinned. Now, this is great stuff. We have a defense attorney. The question is, how come so many of us like to defend ourselves? We've got a defense attorney. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Why do we defend ourselves? You know, look. I don't need your help. Just listen. It was the circumstances. You know, the traffic was really heavy today. And that's why I exploded when I got home. Hmm, that's not going to work. Huh? How about temporary insanity? Is that one going to work? Not going to fly. Look, sure, I did it. But uh, I'm not as bad as most people. And for sure, God must grade on the curve. Have you seen all the good things I've done? Yeah, sure, I did it. Okay, okay, I, I did. But I did it for a good cause. The end justifies the means, right? No, look, it's a, uh, yeah, yeah, I know. But, you know, it's a weakness I have. No, better yet, better yet than a weakness. It's a sickness I have. Is that one going to fly? Look, I know what it says but times have changed. Everybody's doing it now. 
You know, that doesn't ruffle the judge at all. And he keeps staring at me. And finally, I look over at my defense attorney and I say, look, maybe it's time you come in here and give me a help here. And you know, my defense attorney walks in. You know what he says? Guilty as charged. And I go, what? What are you going to do? Well, I get you in here. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. He doesn't present any excuses, no pretext, but he says, I'm guilty. And then he says, but I am going to take the punishment. You go and sin no more. And in our case, our defense attorney is the judge's son. Now he explains how he can say to what he said in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. Christ is our atoning sacrifice. The older versions of the Bible that we used to read used to say he is our propitiation. Now, nobody really understands what that word means, you know. And I always say, you know, next time you go to have your hair done or something, say we're not going to talk about sports. We're not going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about propitiation. Let's give it a shot today. The NIV says he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The NLT says he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sin. Now, in the heart of all religions in the world is an idea of how to appease an angry God. Somehow, perhaps innately, human beings know that God must be angry and has to be appeased. There's all kinds of rituals, offerings, celebration, burnt offerings, all with the same purpose. I was just in Mexico two weeks ago, And the Aztecs, before the Spanish arrived uh, in Mexico, sacrificed their children to the gods, uh, to their gods. One was called Quetzalcoatl, and another one was Cujo Sewalqui. And if you're looking for names for your next children, I got some good ones here for you. And the final one was Huitzilopochtli. And, And they sacrificed their children to these gods, to appease their guilty consciences and try to appease an angry God. Now, we've got plenty of examples here. Uh, Did you see in the paper last year, they actually crucified a person in the Philippine Islands. And I've been present in Quito, Ecuador, and there's every year on Resurrection Sunday, uh, no, it's on Good Friday, on Good Friday, they have a parade where people will walk once a year Miles and miles, and they put masks on so no one knows who they are. Doctors, lawyers, different people. They go, somehow to alleviate that sense of guilt and that feeling of distance between themselves and God. Some of it has a temporal effect, but it doesn't last. You always have to go back and do it over again. You know what I wanted to say to Jimmy in that movie? All the thing you're doing isn't necessary. Jesus paid the price. It's only one act in history that really satisfies the righteous anger of God and alleviates the guilt in our heart. That's a sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary. He is the propitiation for our sins. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. Now, For sure, man's rebellion did provoke God's righteous anger. However, 
in contrast to the other religions of the world, God, the righteous judge, took the initiative himself to satisfy his anger when he sent his son, our defense attorney, to take the punishment for us all. This not only gave us, the accused, forgiveness, but satisfied the righteous justice of God that man had to die. Man had to die. You know, he says it in this way. I think we'll put it up on the screen, 1 John 4.10. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. John Stott, in one of his books, says this about propitiation. Propitiation is very different, not only in the character of the divine anger, but in the method by which someone is propitiated. It is the pacifying of God's anger by God's love by means of God's gift. Now, I want to go to the Old Testament, to Leviticus. And uh, I'm going to put these passages up on the screen. You know, you know where Leviticus is. It's in the clean part of your, body, of your Bible. And, uh, and I want to take a look at what they did there. Because they had a ceremony that really typifies what we're saying here. However, they had to use two goats instead of one. The first goat is found in verse 9 and 10 of Leviticus 16. It says this. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness. Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by, by lot for the Lord. The other goat, the scapegoat, and that's where that phrase comes from, the scapegoat chosen by Lot will be sent away and will be kept alive standing before the Lord. And when it is sent away to the wilderness, the people will be purified and made right to God. Now, the first goat was killed. And that shows that Christ died as a substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous. The second goat typifies forgiveness. Did you see what they did? They sent it away. They took it away out in the wilderness. And two things there. Number one, the heart of forgiveness, even in the Greek word, means to take away, to send away. We're sending it away. And the second thing is they took it out in the wilderness because they didn't want to see that goat again. They did not want that goat to waltz back into the camp because that would mean a remembrance of sin. And that, those sins were set out. In fact, Hebrews 10, 17 says, Jesus, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. Isn't that great? With all that, why is it that sometimes we remember our sins? We're unable to forget them? What happens is that there's still memories or even guilt or remorse over sins that, that have been forgiven. There was a lady that I talked with this week. She says, I've repented, I've fasted, I've prayed, and I can't forget it. Now, sometimes if, it, if the sin that happens before, you're saved. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16 is a help. Paul says, listen to this, this is Paul. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. 
In my insolence, I persecuted his people. You know, he had a murder on his conscience. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with faith and love that come from Jesus Christ. This is a trustworthy saying, and everybody should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners, then others will realize that they, too, can believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, if it's something that happened after salvation, I go to Psalm 103. Let's put it up. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. Now, sometimes when a person says he can't forget a a sin, our counsel, I've done it, maybe you've done it, with the best intentions, we say, God has forgiven you, now you have to forgive yourself. You know, I've looked in the scriptures, I can't find a place where it says me to forgive myself. And I think what it is, is that it's a window into showing us there's something else going on in the person's life. Let me suggest a few of these things. Number one, maybe the person really doesn't understand God's forgiveness. Listen to this in Colossians 2. Put it up on the screen. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave how many? All. Partially, can't forget, all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross, Colossians chapter 2. Another possibility. Maybe the situation isn't totally settled. Maybe there's something else has to be done. Maybe uh, you have to seek reconciliation, have to seek forgiveness or forgive someone. A phone call has to be made. Maybe it has to do with restitution. I don't know. God's done his part, but maybe we need to do something. Three, perhaps the person hasn't changed. I've seen this. They confess their sin, but they haven't repented. They confess their sin, but given the same circumstances, they do it again. They haven't They haven't shown fruits that are worthy of repentance. Luke 3.8. Four. There are others who can't forget their sins for other reasons. I mean, we feel unworthy to draw near to God in prayer. So we're always looking for someone else to pray for us. First of all, there are some people who doubt that God has forgiven them. They doubt it. One lady had an abortion, and she told me that God cannot forgive her. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. If God is faithful, he's faithful. And just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Second, 
Other people have never responded biblically to constant reminders of sin. You know, some people have reminders. People, places, and, and some people don't even want to go to church. Why? Because the messages remind them of their sin. So they don't go to church. You know, in that case, we need to take a look at those reminders of our sin and have them remind us of the cross of Jesus Christ. And to live righteously now. And teach the next generation not to do what we did. Next. Others cannot forget their sins because they cannot believe that I, being who I am, committed that sin. Sounds like pride to me. And you know what the Bible says about pride. Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God. Now, the next one, I'll admit I'm not real good at. And that's dealing with our accuser, Satan. He accuses us before God, Job. He accuses God before us. He's forgotten you. He has his favorites, and you're not one of them. He can't forgive you. You repeated that sin. I was in Mexico, and I ran into an ex-Navy SEAL. And, I mean, you'd think, a Navy SEAL, he's got it all together. And... uh, and he, uh, he's the owner of a CrossFit gym. Are you familiar with CrossFit, what that is? It's sort of a rage right now. And, they just say, but he's, uh, and his, his partner swindled him out of a lot of money. And, uh, and he's haunted at night by thoughts of, I'm not a good provider. I, he's a good Christian. And I, you have failed your wife. Where did this stuff come from, our accuser? I was in San Miguel in El Salvador, and um, it was like three in the morning. It was right in the middle of the revolution, right in the middle of the Civil War. <laughs> and, uh, and, and in the middle of the night, I either woke up or it was a dream, and it was like someone let down a scroll, and there was minutia, things that I had done 30 years ago. One comment I made to a person, it was unbelievable. A bad comment, an angry comment, things like that. You talk about feeling condemned. I felt totally condemned till I realized what was going on. And I showed the cross of Jesus Christ. Another group believes that they must suffer. Got to pay for my own sin, repay God, somehow make peace with God. That's a lack of understanding. That, that there's nothing we can do to deserve God's forgiveness. He did it for us. However, after forgiveness, John himself says, I write these things to you that you do not sin. The best thing after confessing is sin no more. And as we, be, we end tonight, I want to talk about the extension of propitiation. And not for your sins only, but the sins of the whole world. The apostle simply wants to explain what Christ did on the cross was wider than any sin that's committed. It covers our sins, all of them. Sin is universal, and the sacrifice of Christ is for everyone, all of us here tonight. Now, the fact that many people, in fact the majority, never find Christ, never find the narrow way, is not due to the quality of the sacrifice. It has to do with other things. And despite the offer, many choose to act as their own defense attorney. And because they do that, 
They scorn the perfect work of Christ on the cross. We're all guilty. Jesus doesn't minimize, John doesn't minimize it. He doesn't have to because Jesus took it on himself and died in our place so we could live with clear consciences, live in joy and live in holiness. Now, I had a question for you tonight. Do you find yourself in any of these categories like I did? Is there something you, uh, you can't forget? Are you living like Jimmy? <laughs> something you have to confess, perhaps. Something you've been excusing, calling by another name for years. Maybe it's time for you to stand before the judge with your defense attorney at your side, the judge's son, and let him plead guilty as charged and let him take the penalty. You're forgiven. For sure, when John wrote this, he was talking to Christians. But within, as you read through First John, you're going to realize that there were some people in the church that were not true followers of Jesus. Is that your situation? Maybe it's time to get to know the judge and his righteous son and let him become your defense attorney. There's n- there is nothing you can do to appease God's anger. Jesus did it for us. He did it. Jesus did that. And what he wants us to do is respond. Respond in love. Respond to his mercy. Respond to his grace. And if you've never received or taken Jesus or you're not a true follower of Christ, tonight's the night. You know, I don't, my goal is that no one would walk out of here with guilt. We'd leave it all here. And better than that, let's send it away. You know, and we don't want it to waltz back in here again. Because Jesus is going to take it away.